Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. The August Rotto Roundup was brought to you by Fun Again Games. And speaking of August, it was a hot one. Which is actually good, at least for us, because it means it was too hot for Jen to go up and make glass in front of a... 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 degree flame, which is what she does for a living, which means more games for me to play. And it's good for you because it means more games for me to talk to you about. In fact, we've got 23 new games from the last four weeks that Jen, I, and Shay, uh, my number one contributor to the channel, played. And I'm going to run them down for you right now. And uh, as always, this is going to be in countdown format. First of all, starting with the games that Shay did, which I have not personally played, and then counting down the games Jen and I have played until we get to the number one, our new game of the month, as always. So, are you ready, Spaghetti? If so, let me jump over to PowerPoint. And like I said, we will start out with the four games Shay did. Each of these was a paid Kickstarter preview, by the way, so bear that in mind. And what do we got for starters? It's Defection. Which uh, is really not my cup of tea. So it made perfect sense that this would be something that Shay would step up and cover. It's a 4X game, which means uh, exploration, expansion, exploitation, and extermination as we have our spaceship travel all over a randomly generated galaxy, which is constantly changing throughout the course of the game. Something that makes it very, very unique compared to a lot of its uh, contemporaries. Other interesting things about it, at least to me, were the huge amount of focus this game has on developing your crew, and that's a main way to customize your ship. You customize your ship as well, but the way your crew members that you can hire interact with each other was really very interesting. And I also got to say, um, not having played it, but just watching Shay's run through, um, is I like the setting, which is we are basically, our main goal is trying to uh, ferry refugees from a planet, from a system that's about to blow up, to uh, find new homes. I really like that idea. Although, apparently that leads to kind of a, a pretty in-your-face area control game as players are trying to get you know different refugees to different plants and all that. It looks sharp, and if Forex is your thing, you might want to check out Shay's paid preview of Defection. Then we go on to Petricor Cows. And I gotta say, I am so happy to have Shay on the channel to cover this. Because, full disclosure, Petricor is designed by uh friend of mine I've known for years, David Chirkop, and this new expansion, uh, Cows, is from another friend of mine, Dave Turchi, who, you know, and the two Daves work together. And, uh, I've never covered Petricor because at its heart it is an area control game where the areas we control are clouds. As we are trying to seed them to rain, um, all over the different landscapes to make different types of plants grow, and the more I cause the plants to, uh, grow through my reign, the more points I will get, and we're competing for that. Cows literally introduces cows, which is very, very cool. They're adorable, and they uh, basically create these new elements having to do with the creation of methane, which directly affects the, uh, the, the, the clouds themselves. But then the cow is actually a character in the world and moves around also. So, while 
Petrichor is never going to be something for me in Gen, because at its heart, it's a fairly cutthroat... Even though it's lovely and gorgeous and abstract, it's a pretty in-your-face area control game, and I'm really glad to see it's finally on the channel, thanks to Shay, uh, which is another one of his paid previews. Petrichor, cows. Then there is Philosophia. And I gotta admit, folks, this is one, another paid preview for a Kickstarter tile that I almost took on myself, because I really like the core ideas of this. This game is a deck builder crossed with uh, I Split, You Choose. And that is to say, over the course of the game, we are drafting more cards to put into our deck. The cards are multi-use. They are also gorgeous, and uh, I was about to say based on, but they're not based on. They are actual, true, ancient... Um, you know, replicas of this particular art style that just looks absolutely stellar. Really brings the game to life. This is one of the most colorful games I've seen in quite a while. But what's interesting about this, like I said, it is a... Uh, oh, what do you call it? A, a I split you choose. Because at the beginning of every round, we have our hand of cards we're going to play like a regular deck builder, but you hand me your hand of cards, I hand you my hand of cards, you decide one of the cards I don't get to play at all. That's where I, I, I uh, kicked, I, I jumped out because this is an opportunity that you have every round to say, oh, you really want to play that card that's perfect for you. Yeah, you're not, I'm going to discard that on your behalf. And then of your other cards, I'm going to split them up into two different bundles and you will get to activate one of these two bundles. Which one are you going to choose? Now, this is brilliant. This is a really sharp idea, and this makes this so much more interactive than your average deck builder. And so I really was curious to give this a try, but I recognized at the end of the day, it was probably going to be a little bit too in-your-face for me and Jen. So Shay stepped up and covered Philosophia, which, uh, you know, it's actually live on Kickstarter right now. You can go check it out. It seems like it's got a very, very sharp design and a lot of other cool elements to it as well. I've just scratched the surface. But that was his third game. And then his fourth game was Rift Force, which I believe is also literally is live right now, just launched on Kickstarter. And this is one of those battle line style games where you and I are on opposite sides of literally a rift in this game. And we've got our cards and we're playing them to our side in the different slots of the different lanes, trying to line up our special powers to trigger all kinds of cool combo effects. And the interesting thing about this game, all of the powers come from, I think, I think the game comes with 10 elements, maybe more with the with stretch goals. I'm not quite sure. You'd have to check out the Kickstarter page. And when you play, you're going to get four of those elements randomly shuffled together, and then you've got to find ways to make darkness and fire and wind work well together as you mix and match these different types of cards on your side of the line to trigger all these really cool, complex uh, combo chains. And if you watch Shay's video, he and his roommate Nick... I don't know about this Nick guy. I think he's actually like angling for Shay's job. He's very sharp too. The two of them uh, played through a full game and really got to show off some of the very cool combinatorial stuff. Honestly, if you, if I had a copy of Rift Force and you came to me and said, "Hey, let's play Magic: The Gathering," I would say, "No, let's play Rift Force. This looks, this is a lot more engaging and interesting to me." Um, and it was the fourth game that Shay covered. Again, paid preview for our games on Kickstarter right now. Right. Thank you, Shay. This was his biggest month yet. Four games he covered, but that's nothing compared to me. Let's start counting down Jen's and my games that we played, uh, starting at the top of the list with number 16, Warp's Edge. And I lie, because this is a solo-only game. So Jen did not play it. I played it. And I gotta say, it is excellent. This is a bag-building game. You know, think Orleans. 
from designer Scott Alms, Think Tiny Epic series. Uh, it's a solo game where you are a lone fighter pilot behind enemy lines trying to take out a big alien ship boss and wave after wave of bad guys by um, digging into your bag, pulling out five chips, and figuring out how to use them in this little quasi-worker placement thing to trigger your special powers, to attack the enemies, to buy more and more chips to go in your bag so you get more and more special powers. And the game features a Groundhog Day type reset because once the bag is empty, it's like the whole game rewinds. All the bad guys you fought go get shuffled back into the deck and start over. But the level-ups you have earned, the uh, knowledge you have about what bad guys are coming for you, uh, you have earned that, and then you fight your way through again. And you get a certain number of warps, which are these resets that you have to get... At, you have to build yourself up strong enough to take out the entire fleet. And it's very, very sharp. The only reason it comes in at the bottom of my list at number 16 is because it is solo only. As a general rule, I don't play solo games. But here's the deal. If I were to ever update my top 10 solo games, this would make the list. It is so good. It comes with a lot of variety of the type of ships I can pilot, the types of bosses I fight, and tons and tons of different upgrades. So every time you play, you're going to get a different thing evolving in front of you. And it's just really fun and fast and sharp and... I was really impressed by it when I did a backer-only ramble video of it a few days ago. Really liked this a lot. If it came with a co-op um, option, this would probably make it easily into my top 10 of the month, maybe my top 5. As a solo only, I have to rank it down because I don't play solo games. But if I were a solo gamer as well, oh my gosh, Warp's Age. If you love solo games and you like science fiction, you know, uh, Last Starfighter type scenarios, you really owe it to yourself to check it out. My number 16, Warp's Edge. Then we move on to number 15, which is Apollo. And this is a cooperative, real-time dice worker placement game. And you might be running and saying, No! Real-time, no! Don't worry, folks. Um, the real-time, the timer in this game, which you have to provide your own timer, it doesn't come with one, gives you so much time. Every round, you get four minutes to do what you want to do with all your dice. Um, and what we're trying to do is man the, the early Gemini and Apollo missions. Uh, one player or multiple players are the astronauts up in space using the dice worker placement style to keep the mission going, to run experiments, to re uh, effect repairs, to uh, prepare for our next maneuvers that are always just a couple turns away, and we got to get all this stuff done with a, with a, a minimum amount of dice. And meanwhile, one player is Houston. They are mission control back on Earth. They're behind a screen, and the astronaut player or players can't see what Houston can see, which is they're keeping track of the overall status of the mission, and occasionally having to play in little mini-games, um, you know, manage resources, and ha using imperfect communication, limited communication to tell the astronauts, you need to focus on this. That is a waste of your time. Uh, this is how I set it up so that you can succeed if you do this other thing. And so, uh, the collaboration between Houston and Flight, you know, the, the ground player and the astronaut player, is excellent, and we liked this a lot. I actually did the run-through with Jen. If you w don't believe she exists, go watch my Apollo run-through, and you can see her, um, you know, trying to keep me alive in the, in the inky cold blackness of space. 
and uh, we had a great time. The only reason this one doesn't rate higher is because this is actually very much targeted at gateway audiences, and I think it works well. Jen and I found the gameplay to be compelling, but there is a really wide swinginess. Every round, you're going to roll a bunch of dice and then use them, and depending on if you roll lots of sixes, if you roll really, really high, depending on if you're playing normal or hard mode, that can make the game really pretty easy, or really super duper hard. And I would have liked to see just like a little bit more tightening of the random variance, because uh, most of the times, Jen, I've played it, we have just completely cruised through it, even at the tough difficulty levels. But sometimes you're like, oh, the dice say, yeah, you're going to die this time. And now thematically, you know what? Hey, uh, you know, space is cruel and unforgiving, but I would have liked to see... There were a few things I talked about in the final thoughts. I, I think a couple changes could have been made to uh, smooth out the difficulty curve so you get a more consistent experience. That said, I really do think this game is phenomenal. I think it's a great gateway game, although the rules have a, a few problems as well. And, I mean, again, go, don't take my word for it. Watch the run-through and decide for yourself. Watch Jen and me just having a blast, laughing nonstop as we uh, played my number 15 of the month in my run-through, Apollo. And we go on to number 14 which is Alma Mater. And now, this is one of the big new hotness-style Euro games, I think, that are going to be coming out in 2020. A lot of people are super stoked because this is effectively the spiritual sequel to Coimbra, which is a game that came out a couple years ago that everybody loved. We loved it. And Alma Mater, Coimbra, was all about developing Portugal on a macro level, focusing on city development, university development, um, countryside development. Uh, Alma Mater, it seems like it's set in the same basic uh, universe. It even uh, is the same artist and some of the same art, some of the same characters that were in Coimbra now appear in this game. But it's focused down just on universities. And it's really, really sharp. It's, at its heart, a worker placement game where you have very, very few workers and your options are very tightly limited. And you need resources to be able to build up your university, attract all the best professors and all the best students, um, and develop knowledge, which are these very, very cool little uh, plastic book miniatures, for lack of a better term. The thing that really makes this game special is as you develop knowledge, as you teach students, you end up creating a resource that other players can buy from you. And they will need to do that to be able to achieve their goals in the same way that I'll have to occasionally buy knowledge from you. And that's the main focus of the uh, interaction, although there's some other really cool systems too. And I like that a lot. Why doesn't Alma Mater come in higher? One big problem two-player. I think the two-player works okay. It introduces a dummy third player that emulates some of the functions in a very simple system. No upkeep. I can't see any dummy player haters really complaining about the complexity it adds. You just draw a card, it does what it says, and basically it's blocking certain worker placement spots and, and a couple little things. My problem is the dummy player doesn't do enough because the dummy player doesn't really emulate the main interaction between players, which is buying books from each other and you know creating gaps in knowledge and um, you know uh, you know changing the knowledge economy. So in a two-player game, it's really just two players going up against each other and. I believe this game is much better if you have at least a third player, so there are three sources, so that when I have to go out and buy knowledge from somebody else, I've got choices. You can buy from the dummy player, it works, but 
I don't think they took it far enough. And so while I love the core game, and if I played this at a higher player count, I suspect this would have rated much, much higher this month. Because the presentation is great, the gameplay is sharp, it's fast, uh, you get a lot done in a very short time, but at the two-player, I just wanted to see a little bit more work done into the scaling. I wanted to see that dummy player basically buy books from us, um, in the same way that another human player would, to emulate that that more dynamic knowledge economy. So still, very, very sharp, and we had a good time. Again, don't take my word for it. Watch the run-through, decide for yourself if it looks like you'd be bothered by this. But that's my number 14, alma mater. Then we go on to number 13, Ganesha. And now, this one Jen loved. Oh my gosh, she loved this one so much. This would probably be in her top five of the month, I bet. And I liked it a lot. I didn't love it as much as her. And really, I think the reason for that is not the gameplay. The gameplay is super sharp. This is a fun, fast little, very thinky filler game. Nice little puzzly... Um, uh, what do you call it? Gem Drafter. As every turn, we are trying to grab as many beautiful, gorgeous, colored gems as possible and store them up. And then every once in a while, sacrifice some of those gems so we can score the rest and make big points. Um, my issue with the game, really, more than anything else, is it's very abstract. And I would have liked to see theme come in. I mean, to be fair, there is a theme, but here's the theme. Um, you go to a temple to Ganesh, and one of the acolytes says, Hey, we acolytes um, of Ganesh love playing this game. We've played it for generations. Come play this game with us. So it basically invents this game, this kind of found game that never, that we assume has existed for hundreds of years. So, like a game, like games from a hundred years ago or hundreds of years ago, it's very abstract. And I would have liked to see the theme come alive a little bit more. But uh, Jen, turns out, she is much more comfortable with abstracts than me. But what's the game itself? Like I said, it's drafting and having to make the tough decision. Do I score these gems now and I can get big points or do you wait? Because at the end of the game, once all the gems have been drafted, and we go through several rounds of this, um, any gem that haven't been scored, there's kind of like a score-off where players take turns scoring everything. And if you wait until the end of the game to score, you do not have to sacrifice gems. So you're not jettisoning points to make points. But the problem is, if you wait too long, all the best high-scoring uh, spaces will be gone because player other players will have sacrificed some gems to score earlier in the game. And that's the fundamental tension. It's a sharp, simple, gorgeous game. One of the prettiest games, maybe the prettiest game I have played in 2020 so far. It's, so, it's got such wonderful table presence. Sharp, fun, fast little filler abstract. My number 13, Ganesha. Then we go on to number 12, Overstocked. And now, this is a paid Kickstarter preview, like uh, some of the ones that Shay was talking about earlier, so bear that in mind. This uh, hasn't launched yet. It actually launches, I think, in a couple of weeks. But this is another game that is... I don't know if there's a term for it yet. I saw one very good geek list on Board Game Geek. I, I should really give credit where credit's due. Some people were calling them card patching games. The idea that I've got cards, and on my turn, I lay them into a kind of pile of cards, trying to um, cover some elements, not cover elements, to create pattern matching. Or, um, yeah, so like you're patching all these cards together to create one big quilt of icons to score points. And, you know, we've seen a lot of games like this over the last few years. Um, you know, Sprawlopolis and Circle the Wagons and uh, Squire for Hire and uh, Walking in Province, uh, Hokkaido and Honshu. There's a bunch of games. I can't even think of all of them. Patch History. Um, and so, 
you know, Overstock has a lot of competition. What is it that makes it special? Uh, because its, it's subject matter is we're trying to stock our warehouse without overstocking with all kinds of cool Christmas toys, and we want to make sure we've got the most of the most popular toys. What defines popularity? Well, on my turn, I've got my cards. I can either stock them into my warehouse to try to get more uh, yo-yos or Furbies or whatever it is that I'm trying to stockpile, or I can play that card to what's called the popularity. And that represents the waxing and waning of the uh, how much the consumer market wants these things. And this is where uh, out um, Overstock shines. This is probably the most interactive card patching game on the market. Because as I'm building up my warehouse, and I'm really focusing on Tamagotchis, it's set in the 90s, by the way, um, you can see that I really want Tamagotchis to succeed and be super po uh, popular. Here's the problem. If you, if, if you play a card to the popularity to make Tamagotchis the most popular thing, then what happens is the audience kind of um, says, nope, 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 too much, we've lost interest, it's too saturated, and suddenly what was going to be my super powerful Tamagotchi that was going to score me tons of points loses me tons of points instead, because the audience rejects whatever got pushed too much in advertising. They say, no, we don't want it. And then I'm left holding the bill. And so this game is a very delicate balancing act of trying to build up majorities, but trying to make sure that your opponents don't ruin those majorities by making them majority of negative points. And of course, at the same time, you're doing it to your opponent, trying to identify what they're trying to focus on and sync that. And that is why Overstocked I think, is one of the sharpest versions of these card-patching games that come out if you're looking for cutthroated, wow, I am really taking moves. I'm, 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 I'm trying to set myself up and, and lay a trap, and oh, you fell for my trap, and boom, I spring the trap, and I ruin you. It's a cutthroat business simulation in the form of a, of a cute, adorable, fast-playing, filler card-patching game. And if you're looking for cutthroatedness, you might want to check it out. And now here's the deal, folks. You know me. Jen, me, we are the ultimate Care Bear players. We generally tend to stay away. It's why I stayed away from Petrichor all these years, because of the area control. Overstocked is so clever, is so sharp, is so much fun. It has an initiative system uh, with simultaneous play, kind of similar to... Gloomhaven, um, and it uh, you know you know every turn trying to decide to build up the popular the, the popularity to make my things more popular or make your things less popular. If um, I realize, wow, you're really going to sink Tamagotchis. It's not too late for me. I can cover my Tamagotchis up and replace them with yo-yos uh, because they're the second most powerful thing. Because I was able to pull some other move. Jen, I really enjoyed this a lot, in spite of the cutthroatedness, and that says something. That says just how really fantastic, in our opinion, the design is for Overstocked, my number 12. And like I said, this one's coming to Kickstarter soon. Then we can move on to number 11, Fruit Picking, which is an adorable little Moncala game. Very fun, very fast, gorgeous, just so charming. And at its heart, what we're trying to do is pick different types of fruit. At any given time, you can see there are different targets of, uh, you know, try to get full houses of combinations or pears or three of a kinds of, of what are they? Strawberries and pears and plums and stuff like that. And the and so the, the set collection targets you're shooting for are always changing because if somebody else beats you to it, well, I need to pivot and try to change chase after something else now. Um, but 
What's really interesting about the game is how you get the fruit you need to trade in to um, earn these different uh, scoring cards uh, as, as you race to the end. And that's a Moncala. And a Moncala, in case you don't know, there's a bunch of bowls full of... In, in real history, they're full of pebbles, basically. But here, they're full of cute little um, colorful bean or seeds that represent the seeds of the different types of uh, uh, fruit you can grow. And you pick up all the seeds from one bowl and you drop them into subsequent bowls as you go clockwise around the Moncala. And the last bowl you drop them in, you activate that. And in this case, you are activating stuff to either grow or harvest these fruits so that you can hit the targets that, like I said, are constantly changing. And it's really sharp. It's fun. It's fast. It's a great gateway. It's a great my first Moncala. I mean, they, they could have called it that um, because uh, it's, a, it's a great introduction to the idea. There's surprising hidden depth while still being something you could easily teach to anybody. And Jen, I found it super duper charming. A little lightweight, but still really compelling, fun stuff. My number 11, fruit picking. Then we go on to number 10, Fox Matters, which was another paid Kickstarter preview. And I got to say, folks, it breaks my heart that this Kickstarter um, didn't fund and so they've gone back to the drawing board. They are going to, I'm sure, reconfigure, come up with new price points, all that stuff. You know, this sometimes happened with Kickstarters that, uh, you know, at first they don't succeed, try, try again. And I really hope they do because this is a very fun cooperative game based on a Polish comic strip, a webcomic about cute, adorable little fantasy foxes that just have everyday um, problems that they have to deal with um, while always being supportive and upbeat. It's a lovely, charming comic strip, and the game is too. Because while um, we are controlling um, kings and queens and knights and thieves and guards and stuff like that, the goals, uh, the, the, the challenges we have to overcome are dirty dishes and um, homework and uh, you know being late for, for an appointment, stuff like that. And so the game just has this really lovely fantasy presentation with very down-to-earth, relatable goals we're trying to accomplish. And it is a very, very sharp um, card co-op game that, like earlier, I talked about Apollo being a real-time cooperative game, but don't worry, the uh, real-time isn't high pressure. It just keeps you moving. It gives you more than enough time to make all the decisions you need, and that's what Fox Matters does as well. There's a timer. Once it gets going, we um, look at all our cards and decide how are we going to spend them, where are we going to spend these resources representing these cards to focus on the different building dilemmas of our everyday lives. And we have to work together based on what cards you've got, based on what cards I've got, based on what special powers our characters have. It's really, really sharp and just a blast. We were smiling ear to ear while uh, playing it, and I thought for sure it was going to fund. I really hope it makes it when it comes back. I'll be looking for it again. Um, because, yeah, I mean, again, don't take my word for it on any of these things. Go check out the run-through and decide for yourself. Uh, but yeah, I was very, very impressed. It's my number 10 of the month, Fox Matters. Let me go on to number nine, Tekenu. I mentioned earlier that uh, Alma Mater was one of the, you know, the big Euro hotnesses of this year. That's nothing compared. Tekenu is probably one of the most eagerly anticipated Euro-style games of the year. And I finally got to play it, folks. And I gotta say, 
It's fantastic. It's a very impressive. This is a dice drafting game where every round you're going to grab a die and use it as a worker in different areas of the board to in, in ancient Egypt to uh, build up the living quarters of your workers, to uh, make shrines to the gods, to uh, generate food to feed your people, to generate knowledge to enlighten your people, to make statues to worship the gods so that you can b unlock extra special moves all kinds of stuff. And at the center of all of it, that dice draft is very special and unique because the dice are all laid out around a central column that is the Tekenu. It's an obelisk of the sun. And the sun shines and on one and, and, and this obelisk casts shadows. Dice that are in the shadows change their um, their usability. Some get um, some become pure, some become tainted, and some become uh, uh, banished. And on the other side of the column, in the bright sunlight, different dice, depending on the level of lighting, become pure, tainted, or banished. And over the course of the game, the sun moves. This obelisk rotates, and that changes where the shadow and where the light falls. So you are constantly having to think ahead that, okay, I really want to grab that black six next turn, because that's going to be perfect because what I do now uh, will set me up to be able to use that black six next round. But you know what? Next round, the sun is going to move, and then suddenly um, that black die will be in bright daylight, and it'll become banished, and you can't get it. So you are constantly having to think multiple steps ahead because the passage of time, the movement of the sun changes everything, and it's really sharp. And uh, you know we liked the core idea a lot. No surprise, because this is from Daniele Taschini. Who pre and this is as far as I'm concerned the third in his T trilogy, uh, Takenu, Teotihuacan, and Zulk and the Mayan Calendar. Some people consider Trismegistus to be part of this series, and this is therefore a quadrology, and this is a fourth. But Trismegistus, just for the record, because so many people brought this up. Trismegistus is not about ancient civilization building, and it's also not about the passage of time. Teotihuacan, Tekenu, and Zulkin are all about trying to manage and account for and predict the passage of time and how it changes um, your scenario. So, this is great. Like all the others are great, this is a keeper. Jen and I really enjoyed it. Why didn't it come higher? Nine is pretty darn high, but it could have come in higher. It's the same thing I'm complaining about with Alma Mater. Two-player. Watch my final thoughts. Um, there's a couple of super tiny, simple changes that if they were made to the design, I think would have put this into my top three of the month easily. But they don't. Interestingly, Dave Turchi, who is the co-designer on this and designed the solo mode, he has posted on my video. One of the things I said is the solo bot, which brings a third player in, works so well and it drives me nuts. It's not officially part of the two-player. And he officially said you can use it in the two-player. That's one thing. The other thing is the battle for balance. Trying to be maintain a balance, not being too blessed and not being too tainted. Trying to be right in the middle is a meaningless competition in two-player because they just needed to change. It's one of those things where, hey, there's a first player, a second player, a third player, and you want to be first because you get the best rewards. In a four-player game, that works great because the worst reward is terrible. In a two-player game, they didn't adjust it at all. So coming in second on that balance competition gets you the second best reward, and therefore, there's no reason to compete. You'll get the first best or the second best, and that's so dumb! Ah, it drives me nuts! Drives me nuts! Such a simple little change could have made this a top three. But even still, it's great. It's my number nine, Tekenu.
Alrighty, and then um, we want to move on to number eight. What do we got there? Treelings. Oh, this is adorable. This is a very charming, fast little filler game. Uh, it's a card drafter. There are a set of different color trees, and every round you are going to grab one or more of those cards and start building up one of the colored trees in front of you. And we are competing to try to make our collection of trees the highest in the land, because at the end, there's a Firefly Festival, and whoever has the tallest tree can see the fireflies in the, in the kind of fairy kingdom and all that kind of stuff. Really, it's a fairly abstract game, but there's enough theme. We are trying to make our trees taller. So there's two confounding things about this game that make that tricky. One is the draft. Uh, you know, there's always going to be five trees out, and chances are some of them are going to be um, multiples of the same color. Some of them are just going to be singles. You have a choice. You can take all of the singles, or you can take all of one color. And um, that is a very interesting and rich decision right there. It's it doesn't sound so hard, but it's very, very compelling because of the second confounding figure. So you're trying to make all your trees that are lined up you know, in front of you all tall. But here's the deal. If I've got a tree that is seven cards tall next to a tree that is four cards tall, only the tallest trees make a uh, score. So, um, my seven-point tree completely obliterates my four-point tree. And it completely obliterates the six-point tree that's on the other side of it. So, you have to be careful to maintain balance to try to make sure all your trees are equal. And that would be easy if it weren't for the really restrictive draft. Where, okay, I can take all of one color, which means one tree is just going to shoot way up above everything else, or I can take singles, but that's just going to be very patchwork, and can I get the right trees I need to supplement? And then there's an extra wrinkle. As you build these trees in front of you, the player to your left, their rightmost tree affects your leftmost tree. And the player to your right, their leftmost tree affects your rightmost tree, because it's all a circle of trees. So there's a fair bit of interaction, too, that if I build my rightmost tree taller and taller, and you're building your leftmost tree taller and taller, we're directly competing to see who's got... Because one of us isn't going to get to score our trees. It's sharp. It's fun. It's fast. It's got lovely art from Michael Menzel. It's fairly abstract, but really sharp. We very much liked it. Obviously, we liked it. It's my number eight of the month, Treelings. Then we go on to number seven, Streets. And now this is another paid preview for a game that just went on Kickstarter right now. And this is the follow-up design from um, designer artist uh, Hakan Garter. And his previous game from a couple of years ago was Villagers, which I loved. Jen loved. That was a really great card drafting game. Now he's coming back with Streets, which is a tiling game. Tiling, one of my favorite mechanisms. And the beautiful thing about this game is, this is really interesting. I have played a lot of tile layers, and generally, Jen and I prefer tile layers where we're each working on our own little suburb, our own little castle, whatever it is. Whenever there's a communal area that we're laying tiles to, like Carcassonne, it's often a problem for us because these games can get pretty cutthroat as you try to see what your opponent's doing and cut each other off and mess with each other and all that. Streets is a communal building area, and you might think that would be a problem for us, but it's not. Because every time I put down one of the tiles, the three tiles in my hand, and at the end of my turn I draw back up, um, and I either extend an existing street or start a new street, um, every building you add onto the streets of this city has some kind of scoring method at the end of the game, whether it's be adjacent to other types, or um, you know, you know, have certain types of of uh, population, be on the street you're on. There's various and sundry things. And the thing is, um, when I put a tile down, 
you might say, rather than, oh, I want to go on that street and cut you cut me off, you instead say, oh, I want to get on that street and piggyback off of what I've done. Because if I put down, say, a street that generates um, residential homes, and you've got a, a building that really feeds off of that, then you want to get onto my street. And so there's a lot of actual collusion and working together. Especially because we, we don't know exactly what's in each other's hands, but we can see the back of tiles. So if I've got a tile that wants to see a lot of residential, I don't know what types of buildings you've got, but I can see the backs of your tiles. Oh, two of your three tiles are residential. I think I'll wait for you to play them, and then I'll jump into that street. Now, on the flip side, there is a little bit of uh, you know going at it because it is possible that you can close a street off. Once a street has been closed off on both sides and can't expand anymore, that's when everything scores. And so timing of that is crucial. And you might think, you know what? I can't get in. I can't really do anything well with that street. I'm not getting anything out of it. You're going to get a lot out of it. I just need to shut that street down now. So there is a little bit of back and forth, but not enough to bother me and Jen at all. We were really blown away. It's an incredibly clean, simple, fast, elegant, and absolutely lovely game. Um, it's on Kickstarter right now. Remember, this was a paid preview. Uh, that was my number seven. Streets. Then we go on to number six, the Dr. Finn 2021 Games Collection, which is a compilation of four excellent little games. It's on Kickstarter right now, where with just a single pledge, you can get one, two, three, or all four of the games for basically the price of just a normal board game. It's an amazing deal. And uh, please bear in mind, though, this is a paid Kickstarter preview. And right now, I'm just going to do a little mini countdown of the four titles. And I'm going to start out with Butterfly Garden, which is the most lightweight of the four games. And it's actually a game I covered a couple of years ago. Uh, this is the second edition of Butterfly Garden, and it takes the gameplay I demonstrated back in the day and streamlines it and makes it even more gateway-friendly. And at the same time, makes it so gorgeous. Oh my gosh, this game has gotten such an amazing facelift. It is just beautiful to behold. But what is it? Well, we are basically nature enthusiasts who are trying to save butterflies who are at risk because of a local construction project that is destroying their territory. So we have rushed out with glass jars in hand, trying to collect as many butterflies as we can so we can transplant them to locations that are going to be great habitats for them. And we do it uh, through card play. Everybody has three cards in their hand, and everybody, each round, picks one and reveals it at the same time. Now, this represents one or more butterflies that we are going to put in our jar because we're doing set collection. If we can get the right combination of butterflies in our jar, we can score big points with them. And so, we're all revealing at the same time what uh, butterflies we captured. But, in addition to that, there's a number on the card that indicates our speed. The lower the number, the faster we go, because there are additional butterfly cards out on the table that this represent ones that are out in the field. And if I go quicker than you, I get first dibs on the butterflies that are available, and those ones are going to go into my hand. So, I'm, every round, I'm putting some butterflies in the jar to do set collection, and I'm setting myself up to do it further by getting more of them into my hand. And 
That in and of itself is a very, very cool idea. But some of these butterfly cards have cool special powers as well. Uh, that, you know, let you change the state of the world. Uh, even one of the powers lets you interact with opponents and whatnot. And, uh, you know, and uh, it's super sharp. Jen and I thought it was a great little gateway game when we played the first edition. And it is even better now. It is the lightest of these four games that are in the 2021 game collection. But it's a great gateway. I think I could definitely play this with my mom and have a great time. And it's so pretty. It's just so gorgeous. And I gotta say, I love the theme. This could be just an abstract set collection game, but I love the fact that it casts us as heroes, rushing out to um, you know, try to save animals threatened by um, you know, human development. Everything I just love about uh, this little game. It's a bit on the lightweight side, uh, so that's something to bear in mind, but that's Butterfly Garden, second edition. And the next one in my countdown, my mini self-contained countdown, is Mining Colony. Which is interesting, another game that I covered a few years ago. But man, while Butterfly Garden has gotten a makeover and a few tweaks, Mining Colony has gotten a major overhaul. When I covered this years ago, or was it last year? I don't remember now. A, a while ago, it was a two-player only game. Now it's one to four players, and it hasn't sacrificed anything. But what is it? It is a game where players are trying to create mining colonies on an alien planet, and uh, it's a Tetra-style polyomino tile layer, which I love. Uh, being able to develop the tracts of land so we can do mining operations, they come in all these different little Tetris pieces, and we're also putting nice little components on top of the Tetris pieces. So there's really tile laying, but that's really creating the foundation for this colony we're actually trying to build with all these other pieces that we're collecting. Uh, different types of minerals we're trying to mine, equipment we can get, all that stuff. And interestingly, like Butterfly Garden, this game is uh, driven by everybody at the beginning of every round, picking a card and simultaneously revealing it. High number lets you go first. And every round, there are going to be a number of bundles of stuff we can grab based on the number of players. And everybody's going to get a bundle, but not all bundles are created equal. Some of them are demonstrably superior to others. So you do not want to be left out. You want to bid high. Um, and the interesting thing is, is, so if I've got a high value card and I play it so I can get first, that card doesn't get out, go out of the game. It goes to the bottom of my draw pile, which means late in the game, that card is going to come back. Whereas, if I'm not particularly interested in any of the bundles, and I think, hey, you know what? I should save my high-value cards and use a low-value card right now, and I'll just take what I can get. Well, that means the low-value card is going to go to the bottom of the deck. And again, you will see it later in the game, when you least want to see it, when you're desperate to get those last few bits. So, there's a surprising amount of thought that has to go into every round of this kind of simultaneous bidding. And uh, But that's only half the game, because once you've got whatever you've got, you've got to how am I going to lay this out? Uh, each player uh, has two different boards they could play on, the easy and the more complex one. If you end up getting equipment that you can't use right now, you have limited storage to put some of it aside and use for later, or you can sell it to get credits, which will allow you to literally terraform stuff that you get later, so you have more control. So there is a lot of thought that goes into this game. And uh, you know, Jen and I enjoyed it as a two-player game. We enjoyed it originally as a two-player game, but it's awesome now that it can be played four-player, or it can be played solo as well. And uh, you know, it, it's fun, it's very fast. That's true for all four of these games. These are very, very quick playing games with a surprising amount of depth, and that is Mining Colony. After that, we've got Biblios 
Quill and Parchment, which I'll be honest, was the one I was most excited about in this collection because I love Biblios. Uh, Biblios from you know the same designer, Dr. Steve Finn, uh, you know, the, all four of these games are his designs, is one of the modern masterpieces of card game design. An incredibly brilliant, simple, elegant game of incredible insane tension. And um, Biblios Quill and Parchment takes uh, the core ideas, the core structure of Biblios, and transcribes it into a roll and write. Or a quill and parchment instead of roll and write. And oh man, it is good. Uh, instead of doing an I split, you choose thing with cards like the original Biblios, we are now doing Yahtzee-style roll, re-roll, re-roll. But here's the tricky thing. I roll all my dice. Three of them I love, but the other ones, I gotta re-roll these other ones. Here's the problem. I have to make a choice. I can re-roll one of the dice or all of the dice. I can't re-roll two or three. And so you're always presented with this, I want to keep these two and roll... Nope. Ah, do I re-roll everything? No, I'll just re-roll the one and maybe I'll re-roll the other one next. I don't know. Um, and you have to make that decision based on what it is you need, but also you can see what everybody else rolled. And um, while they're deciding what they're going to re-roll, you're deciding because we are all in a race. We are all scribes at a medieval monastery, you know, trying to transcribe books and, and go on pilgrimages and stuff like that. And we're competing everywhere. So if I see, oh my gosh, you got three blues and I only got one. Maybe I should just re-roll everything and try and beat you. But what if you don't even care about those blues? I don't know if you're going to re-roll. Are you going to re-roll one? Are you going to re-roll all of them? Because we all have to simultaneously decide and reveal what we're going to do. And that's really clever. But that's just the first half of the game. Because a lot of the resources we harvest in the first half, then we use in an auction in the second half to get really big paydays. Which again, is the same idea as Biblios. And I gotta say, folks, I almost like this more than Biblios. Because Biblios had a huge portion of memory to it. And this does not. All the information is out there, so you can make much more informed decisions throughout the game. And it works so well. I'm not saying this eclipses Biblios, because Biblios is pure, unadulterated genius. But Biblios Quill and Parchment, it's pretty genius too, and we liked it a lot. But there's one more in this collection. Uh, my number one in the little countdown is a totally brand new design, um, unlike these previous ones where it's Steve revisiting some of his older stuff and tweaking it and polishing it and making it cooler and neater and better. Um, but this new one, Nanga Parbat, is just the bee's knees. I am so impressed by this one. Um, it's two-player only, and we are Sherpa communities trying to use the land of the, the of the mountainous regions we live in. Nanga Parbat, I think, is, I forget, the seventh highest mountain in the world? Uh, Wikipedia will give you the answer. I don't remember exactly. But the brilliant thing about this game is uh, you seed the main board, which is full of all these adorable little animal meeples that the uh, uh, that, that players are collecting to either do set collection and or to use them for their special abilities. And there's a bunch of different abilities, and it's a very tense race. Um, but the interesting thing is, if I say pick the uh, the the yak in slot number three, that means 
on your turn as the next player, you then uh, get to take any of the animals from mountain number three. And if you take the leopard that was in spot number one, that means on my turn, I get to take any of the animals in mountain number one. And this creates so much tension, because it is often the case that I really want this animal. But if I take this animal, I'm giving you access to this mountain, and I know that's the mountain you want, because you're going to be able to complete a huge string of camps up there, and it's going to score you huge points! What do I do? Well, a lot of the special powers that these animals have when you collect them can get you out of buying like that, but it is such a sharp, fun, fast-playing little game. I have to admit, I went back and forth on um, Biblios, Quill and Parchment versus Nanga Parbat for my number one of this little mini countdown, But I'm because I'm, I'm super impressed by both. And I should say, by the way, folks, that for Biblios and Nanga Parbat, uh, there are run-throughs on my channel. I did a run-through for Biblios, Quill and Scribe, and uh, uh, Shay Parker, my contributor, did a great run-through for Nanga Parbat. If you want to see this in action, I highly recommend it. But suffice to say, um, you know, the tension is just nail-biting, is palpable. These are four wonderful little games. I'm impressed by all of them quite a bit. There's a huge range, whether you're looking for really interesting two-player-only stuff, a lot of solo gaming, uh, you know, really tense. Uh, crunchy stuff, or if you want lighter, more gateway-friendly stuff, the whole collection has you covered. And uh, that was the Dr. Finn 2021 Game Collection. And now, on to our number five, we've got Cascadia, which is another paid Kickstarter preview. Uh, it was a very good Kickstarter month. Um, although, this one is not live yet. It will be going live soon. So, bear that in mind. And Here's the deal, folks. Like I said, paid Kickstarter preview. Grain of salt, as I always say. Um, in my final thoughts for this, I, Babe Ruth style predicted, this is an early odds-on favor for me for Top 10 of 2021. This game is so good. I'm reminded of last year's Calico, which was a game I covered on Kickstarter, and it just turned out to be such an amazing, tense, rich exciting and yet simple and elegant tile layer. That's what Cascadia is all about. Um, this is not the first tile layer we played where uh, you are doing a draft for tiles where you have to grab a bundle. Uh, because there's, at any given time, four terrain tiles and four um, wildlife tiles that are bundled together into four groups. And if I really want that mountain, I'm desperate for it, that means I also have to take the bear. And I've got no place for that bear in this little habitat I'm trying to make in Cascadia. And so, do I take that mountain that is perfect for me for, uh, for getting maximum points for area majority on mountains, even though that means I can't use the bear? Or do I hope that doesn't go away, take this woodland over here that would give me a spot for the bear, and I'll get a bird or a hawk, and I can do something with the hawk. I don't even care about the hawks, I'm just trying to get this, so that next turn I can go back to the mountain and get the bear, because now I'll have a place to give the bear. Yeah, maybe I'll go for that. But you know what? That bear might not be there when it comes back around to me. So this is very much a bear in the hand versus two in the bush type game. And it's so sharp, especially because the draft is brilliant, but the tile laying is even better. Because we take these two tiles that were bundled together. One of them uh, is the, the terrain, the landscape, that we are trying to build up to score all kinds of majorities, to have the biggest forest, the biggest mountains, etc., etc., and trying to lay them out you know, hexagonal style. But then we've got the other tiles that are the wildlife. We um, And every time you play, 
play, there are going to be five random cards to determine how the five types of wildlife score points. And by the way, these point-scoring things are based on the real behavior of these types of animals, which is brilliant, a nice touch, attention to detail they didn't have to do. And so, you are constantly having to juggle. Am I focusing on getting more points from terrain or more points from wildlife? Obviously, you want to do both, but you can't always get the right combination of tiles to be able to do both. And so you're constantly making tough, agonizing decisions, real compromises in what is 100% a very clean gateway-style game. But this is one of those rare gateways that Jen and I would happily play for the rest of our lives, and yet I could teach it to anybody in three minutes, and it'd be up and running in everybody. This game is a minor miracle of elegance and um, simplicity and tension and excitement, and it's gorgeous. And yeah, it's my number five of the month, Cascadia. But we're not done yet, folks. If you thought that was good, wait till we hear about number four, Hamburg. Another paid preview. This is on Kickstarter right now. Hamburg is the re-implementation of one of designer Steffenfeld's most loved games, Bruges. And it's certainly one of Jen's. I think it's Jen's probably her second or her third favorite Feld. Right up there with... Uh, I mean, she really loves Trajan and Amerigo. So it's, it's going to be in the top three for her. And um, Hamburg takes the original gameplay of Bruges, which is a card drafting game where we have multi-use cards. Every card you have has six different uses. And every round, you've got a bunch of cards and trying to figure out how to make these cards combo together with six different uses. So many different things you can do. So many things you could focus on. Whether you, um, you know, expand your own uh, you know, district or contribute to the city or you know, take advantage of special opportunities and events that pop up here and there. But all driven by these multi-use cards. It's the most multi-useless multi-use card game of all all time, at this point anyway. And so a lot of people love Bruges. It's been very hard to get for a long time, and the expansion is even harder. So Steffenfeld got the rights to Bruges back, and he took it to a new publisher, Queen Games, and they have uh, rejigged it, set it in a new city, combined the original game with the expansion, added another expansion's worth of content that never existed before with Bruges, and um, then also, not for nothing as far as I'm concerned, fixed the biggest problem that I had with Bruges, which is it's incredibly luck of the draw swingy. Um, it was always a very tactical game, and now with some core changes, and you can watch my run through to see what the changes are, it has become a much deeper, more strategic game, and both Jen and I agree it is a much, much improved game. And um, you know, so Jen's super excited because she already loved Bruges and now she's got this coming. And I'm excited because I had some problems with Bruges and now I can enjoy Hamburg as much as Jen enjoyed it. And it's, it's fantastic. It improves. I think the one complaint, the number one complaint people have is um, in addition to transplanting and changing the setting, they've also changed artists. And you know what? Michael Menzel is one of the hottest, best, most loved artists in the industry. So it is going to be tough to follow Michael Menzel. Um, you know, the new art, I think, is fine. It looks kind of comparable to other Queen games. I know it's not finalized. They're still working on it. You know, what I covered was a prototype. But, um, you know, some people will be disappointed that some of the charm of Bruges is lost and becomes maybe a bit more 
cold and clinical looking, uh, as Queen games often do, because they kind of look a little abstracted. Um, but you know what? That's a small price to pay for radically improving the core gameplay and adding a whole bunch of new content as well, which is why Homburg is my number four of the month. And then we go on to number three, um, Marvel Champions. And this is a double feature, uh, because this month, Jen and I sat down for our latest Rest and Relax you know, patron-only video, and we played an epic game of Black Widow, which I've mentioned in previous uh, roundups, and The Hulk, which I just got in the mail, going up against Wrecking Crew. So, this was my first real chance to play Hulk and Wrecking Crew. I played Wrecking Crew a few months ago, but as a solo game, and everybody agrees, Wrecking Crew is kind of terrible at solo, so I really wanted to play it with Jen. Jen finally agreed, after months of me playing Marvel Champions solo alone, I finally got to play it with her, and I was reminded just how amazing the game is. And here's the deal. Wrecking Crew is a great scenario to go up against if you're playing multiplayer. I wouldn't recommend it solo play. It's a lot of fun multiplayer. Although I'd still say of all of the scenarios, it is still the weakest, but I definitely enjoyed it. Hulk. Let's talk about him. The latest hero to get his own expansion pack. He is really cool and very surprising. You would think you would understand what Hulk would be. Hulk smash, right? And to be fair, there's a lot of Hulk smashing. He can do more damage than any other character. He has more hit points than any other character. Um, and he's super brilliant because on the other side, when he switches to his alter ego, he's Bruce Banner, one of the smartest uh, people in the Marvel uh, Comics universe. And so all this stuff is awesome. But what's really interesting is... While Hulk is incredibly strong and powerful and unstoppable, he's not very smart. And so you have really very strict limitations put on you in terms of card play while you're Hulk. You can do a lot of damage, but you can't do a lot else. And you're really... It's very, very difficult to play him well. And so, Mastery of the Hulk requires a lot more interplay between... Um, the hero form and the alter ego form. I haven't seen this much. I mean, it's it's like it's, he's up there with uh, Miss Marvel, um, and uh, which is really interesting. I mean, you know, like Captain America, he can stay hero form forever. Spider Man, you know, Doctor Strange. It, you know, oh, this is every once in a while I have to switch over. Hulk, you want to stay on the battlefield as Hulk all the time, but you just start running out of steam because Hulk isn't smart enough to plan, and you have to switch back to Banner. And again, as I always say, every time I talk about another Marvel Champions expansion, I love that. It feels so thematic. It is excellent, and I didn't expect this. I, this is not how I would have expected Hulk to feel, and I'm very, very impressed that that's how they've done it. And it comes in at my number three. Um, actually, I would say it might have been my number two, but Wrecking Crew kind of drug it up a little bit. Um, and all, one other thing, I've, I haven't played Hulk solo now. I've only played in multiplayer, which is the way I'd rather play. I've heard some people say Hulk is very bad to play solo. Bear that in mind. I don't know. I suspect he works. It just means you have to deck build smarter. Um, but anyway, my number three of the month, Marvel Champions, Wrecking Crew, and Hulk. But hey, let's go on to number two, which is Tapestry's Plans and Ploys. This is the first expansion uh, for Tapestry, which made my top ten of games last year. It's my second favorite Civilization game after after Nations. I think it's brilliant. I think it holds up. And um, this new expansion adds 10 new civilizations, all of them just as crazy, far out, asymmetrical, um, and you know, makes you feel like you're playing a completely different game than everybody else, almost, um, depending on who you are. And, uh, and it also adds new secret goals, or not secret, but private goals um, that you can go for so you don't, uh, you know, if somebody freezes you out of, you know, major civilization buildings on the main board, 
board. You can always work on your own separate. That's kind of nice. It adds a few new tapestry cards, um, which were fine. But really, it's all about the 10 new civilizations. And we played four of them. We played Aliens and Recyclers. That was the first game we played. And the second game I, I was... I want to say Thieves... And it's not the water, because water, I think, is like Islanders or something like that. Uh, I don't remember, because it's actually two months ago we played this. I actually could have talked about this in last month's roundup, but I was under embargo. I couldn't actually talk about it till this month. So it's been a while since I played, but both games Jen and I played, we were once again just reminded how much we love, love, love Tapestry and all the cool new ideas this brings. It also, I haven't looked at this yet, it comes with a very cool campaign mode for solo play which is interesting. Um, and it... Uh, oh, also, on the last page of the rulebook, it ratifies the tweaks and adjustments to the starting civilizations in the original tapestry. Because if you remember, in the original tapestry, it says in the rules, hey, bear in mind, we might have to apply some small tweaks to affect balance. Those uh, tweaks are now official. They're all written up in the rulebook for people who don't want to download an FAQ online. So I, I appreciate that that's there, too. Yeah. I continue to adore Tapestry, think it's absolutely brilliant, and so no surprise that Flans employs, which is just one of those, hey, here's more. It doesn't fundamentally change the game or you know, you know, turn it on its head. It just says, here's if you love it, here's more, so you'll love it even more. And we did. It's our number two. But folks, we have a number one. Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. And don't worry. No spoilers here. One of the nice things about uh, Legacy Season Zero is it comes with a prelude mission that you can play as many times as you want. And that's what Jen and I played on camera in our monthly live Rotto runs through, um, if you want to actually see how it plays. And we had a great time. And here's the deal, folks. I probably could have covered some more games this month, but we played Pandemic Legacy um, Season Zero uh, 12, 13, 15 times this month. 15 times, um, which really kind of cut into um, our game, our, you know, our other time. Now, it's a good, I, I, you know, August was a very hot month. So it was a good thing that Jen had more time to play games with me and kept coming down from her baking hot studio where she doesn't have AC up there. Really need to do something about that. But I don't mind because it means I can play more games when it's hot because it's cool inside the house. And so we spent a lot of time. And it's weird. I have often complained in the previous Pandemic Legacy, seasons one and two, how we just you know um, had to burn through it as fast as possible because we didn't get an advanced copy. I got an advanced copy, which meant we were like, yay, we can enjoy this like a fine wine and sip it slowly and spend weeks on it. We couldn't help ourselves. We blew through this thing in um, under two weeks uh, because we loved it so much and we're having a great time. The setting is actually a prequel to um, Pandemic uh, Legacy Season 1. It's actually a prequel to Pandemic as a whole because it's set in 1962 at the height of the Cold War. And instead of being scientists running around trying to stop the spread of disease, we are fresh medical students right out of school who have been recruited uh, by the CIA to, because of our medical knowledge, to run around the world and uh, try to investigate Soviet plans to develop a bioweapon. And uh, the core gameplay is the same. It's all about traveling, you know, having a handful of cards, knowing when to you know set collect to get those cards together in the right place to be able to solve the core problems of the game. But also, we can spend those cards to be able to travel around and um, deal with rising threats that um, are potentially going to explode on us. And um, but. You know, so the core gameplay is probably 85% the same and 15% different. But the theme, of course, is very, very different because we're not fighting um, 
the uh, the spread of disease. We're spiting the spread of communism. And actually, I will take a second to address. There's a, there's a lot of controversy about this game on Board Game Geek because some folks say it is it is insensitive. Uh, you know, is the kindest way to put it to rep- to say that Russian citizens are a disease that needs to be eradicated uh, because you've just replaced disease cubes with little um, Russian people that you're running around trying to kill. For the record, folks, and I, I haven't done my final thoughts. I'll have to mention this in the final thoughts as well. We literally just graduated medical college. How are we going to run around the world and kill hundreds of trained KGB agents? That makes no sense. What we were hired to do is travel around the world and investigate um, you know, reports of the bioweapons. And so we're just there to follow up leads and burn spies, which is to say, blow their cover so they end up having to go back to Moscow. We're not killing anybody in this game. It just fundamentally makes no thematic sense to think the kids straight out of school are going to be able to take on dozens and just kill rampantly without even breaking a sweat all these KGB agents. It's ridiculous. Um, Never mind the fact that at no point in the game does it ever say, we finished it. Um, You are running around this world trying to um, investigate and find out. And when you investigate, you follow up leads, and that means the agents, they disappear. They go back home because you blew their cover. And of course, you're in danger at all times of having your cover blown as well. Um, anyway, sorry. That's totally as an aside. I just feel like it needs to get out there because so many people have such a an incorrect assessment of the game. But... Oh man, I could go on about this forever. And it's really tricky because I don't want to get into spoiler territory. Um, So suffice to say, um, uh, uh, some high-level things. I would say of the three legacies, we had the most fun playing this one. I, I think that's true. I still think season one is the best one. Because even though we had more fun playing this, the subject matter of season one is more... It's more evocative. It's set in the modern day. It's a it's a problem that we actually face in our world. And you know the I mean heck more now more than ever. Uh, it, we found season one is serious. It um you know it has very little tongue in cheek stuff. It you know it plays it straight. This is a real problem. We are serious scientists trying to deal with a serious problem. In season zero, I'm not saying where it's quite get smart level. But it is definitely, there is a lot of tongue-in-cheek. I mean, the fact that the first thing you do is um, put together a disguise for yourself, and you can put eye patches and, and pipes and, and um, you know, silly hats and, and all kinds... So you can make yourself look a bit silly. And there are some gadgets you get that feel like they might have fit, uh, that Maxwell Smart could have used them. Although I will say, overall, I would say the tone is kind of closer to... Um, Connery-era Bond, or Man from Uncle, or um, you know the Avengers, you know the old British Avengers show. It's it's kind of there in that it's really just kind of like high adventure. Sometimes it gets serious, sometimes it gets a little silly, but it's definitely more light and adventury. There there are some dark chapters, but for the most part, um, it's just it's just kind of a, a breezy thing. And the emotional roller coaster we went on playing Pandemic One, I think, trumps. Season Zero. Even though I would say we had more fun with Zero, um, I, I kind of miss some of the emotional heft that Season 1 had for us. Which, if you want to know about that, you can go watch my final thoughts for Season 1 and watch me cry as I talk about it on camera. And Jen is off camera crying too because we got so swept up in the drama of that. There are definitely some dramatic moments here too, make no mistake. The other main high-level thing I'll say about Season Zero, easy. It is the easiest. Here's the deal. And we played um, season one. We lost twice, so we had to replay missions 
twice. So we ended up playing 14 total games. In season two, we, um, what was it? We lost one time. So it got easier. In season zero, we made it through the entire story, never losing. The game became, for us, much more gamer friendly. Now, I suspect, like always, pandemic gets harder the more you play, the more players you have. And, you know, Jen and I, we only play as a two-player game. I'm sure it'd be more challenging as a four. Oh, man, uh, I need to reset this video because there's just a whole lot of nothing going on screen. Let's see if I can rewind that and reset that so you guys can see some stuff looking. Because I didn't plan to talk this long. Anyway, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, it's, uh, you know, there are definitely things you can do like all the pandemics, that make you godly. And if there's only two gods, two demigods in terms of the raw power you have running around, the game can't stop you. Whereas if instead, those powers of those two gods were spread amongst four demigods as opposed to two real gods, thinking like in terms of, you know, a Roman pantheon type stuff, you know, Jen and I were able to really just run roughshod over the game. I think there was one mission where we almost lost, where the deck almost emptied out, and we could have lost in one more turn if we didn't finish it in time. But for the most part, several of the missions, we ended just like that, because we made choices that... By the way, I went and I confirmed with Matt Leacock, because uh, I thought, wow, this made it so easy for us. And he said, yep, you played that right. That's a smart strategy. And, um, and I really think it's a mistake that they continue all three games now, they have this auto difficulty adjustment thing they do, which is nice, but it doesn't ramp up the difficulty enough. And um, I, the game should have come with a sixth epidemic, although now they're called escalation cards. So you could have just chosen to play at a tougher difficulty level. I actually talked about this at the end of the playthrough we did. Uh, if you watch Jens and my live playthrough of the spoiler-free prelude. Um, I think it could have done that. I'm not complaining, though, because we had a blast. Oh, and one more thing I have to talk about. Heck, maybe this is my final thoughts. Maybe I don't need to do final thoughts. I've gone into this fairly long. The last thing I would like to report loud and clear, do not expect that you have to throw this game away once you have finished the scenario. That is not the case. Once you have finished this scenario, you have a customized version of the world, and I have already developed 1963 variants. The game takes place in the year of 1962, and after it's all over, and you've got your custom board, and you've unlocked all the stuff... I'm not going to tell you what any of the stuff is. Although, by the way, there are two things in this game that are two of the coolest ideas that have ever been implemented in Pandemic. One is very big and grandiose. One is very simple. And I would love to see it in regular Pandemic. Um, and uh, But anyway, there's so much cool stuff once you've unlocked it all. It is, it is child's play to continue being able to play this game with an infinite replayable that has just as much replayability as base Pandemic ever did. I will post... I'm probably going to film a video about it, and I'll post uh, my rules when the game is available in October, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm just, you know, Scout's Honor... Do not avoid this game if you're bothered that once it's over, you have a game you have to throw away or burn in a fire or whatever. You have a game that you will... The story will be over. You'll have a world set in stone with hot spots and safe spots and all kinds of spots. But um, you will definitely be able to continue to play and enjoy. And that's why I said, I played the game 15 times. We played our 12 games and won every single one. We won the Prelude game. Oh, spoilers. We won. Um, and then we have played my new 1963 variant twice, and it works. It just works great. And that's it, folks. I am done with my um, new roundup of the month. And let's see what is happening here. There we go. Yes. Phew. 
Oh, that was a lot. How much time? How long have I been talking? Oh, only 57 minutes. That's not too bad. Um, what the downside of hot weather is it's hot in here. I could turn on the overhead fans, but then the mic hears it and you just hear nothing but white noise throughout. So I need a shower. But uh, that was it, folks. 23 games, I believe, in uh, 50-some minutes. And I'll be back again in four weeks with a bunch of new games. You want to know what those games are? Again, hit that eye in the top right corner screen. Go check out what's coming soon. And otherwise, have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. And thanks once again to Fun Again Games for hosting the show. Oh, bye-bye.